0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. And today we're continuing our series, Finding Forgiveness for the Worst of Sins, with a message entitled, Forgiven. So join Dr. Newfeld as we turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 32, verse 1 to 5.
1: Clara Null was a Sunday school teacher. She was teaching her class of young boys and girls about forgiveness. She turned to Billy, a boy that sometimes gave her problems, and she said, Billy, tell me what we must do before we can expect to be forgiven of our sins. And without even a moment of hesitation, young Billy replied, well, first you got to sin. Well, indeed, he was right about that. But have you noticed that that first step is done with the greatest of ease? Indeed, it was David in Psalm 51, verse 5, who said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we know that this verse describes the doctrine of original sin in all of us. But for David, this was not a doctrine alone, but a very personal experience. David said, I've never known a moment when I was not a sinner. Indeed, my sin reveals my deeply depraved heart. I was once talking to an older Christian man about heaven, and he said to me one of the things that he was looking forward to the most was never having to struggle with sin again. He said, I'm just looking forward to the day when I'm done with sin. Indeed, so am I. I'm deeply tired of sin, of its effects, and of the harm I do in my relationship with God. Now, we've been studying the concept of forgiveness, and our starting point has been the heinous sin of King David. And as we know, he committed adultery and then arranged the death of the woman's husband, married the now pregnant widow and tried to cover everything up and was discovered and exposed. His sin became public and David was both disgraced and humbled and then became deeply remorseful and repentant. Psalm 51 records his confession, his repentance and his heart's cry that God would create in him a pure heart. Rather than keeping the matter private, David decided that he would make matters public. He he would not hide his sin. And out of his experience, he writes two psalms. The first, which we've already studied, is Psalm 51. It's a, a psalm written shortly after his experience. In Psalm 51, David makes a promise. Verse 13 says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, in Psalm 32, David makes good on his promise. Traditionally, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 have been tied together. Whereas Psalm 51 has a raw emotional feeling, Psalm 32 has a more reflective tone to it. This is a teaching psalm about sin, about guilt, and what to do with the regret that we face. Some have called Psalm 32 a doctrinal psalm, and it is gives a clear doctrine of confession and of forgiveness. But others have also rightly pointed out that this is a thanksgiving hymn, something that the worshiping community of Israel might have been taught to sing. For when they were singing, they were extolling the virtues of a God who forgives sinners. And that is no small thing, for Psalm 32 gives hope to all who have sinned badly. And it's to this matter, this, this matter of joy and of worship and of the gladness of the forgiven people of God that have been cleansed, it's to this matter that I want to address our thinking today. Too many Christians walk through life without joy, perhaps because they experience regret or, or sense their sin and go through life with guilt. Perhaps you're one of those people. And, and because of that, joy and gladness and overwhelming happiness has never been yours. Perhaps you're among those who might even say, you know, I know I'm going to heaven because, because of what Christ has accomplished for me on his cross, but I still have a deep feeling of shame regarding my own sin. I'm not what I should be, and, and I feel I've failed my Lord. I know the Bible tells me of Christ's forgiveness, but I don't feel the joy and freedom of that. Now, if that's how you feel, what I have to say today is to declare God's offer to those who have faced their sin to come and participate in happiness, in joy. Listen to a man who had much to feel guilty about, King David. Listen as this man describes the ways of God and the God who declares guilty men to be forgiven and free. So let's begin. Psalm 32, 1-2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, let's begin with the word blessed. Now, I have not been an advocate for translating the word blessed as happy. But in this case, I think an argument can be made for exactly that, for happy. How happy, how deeply cheerful, how delighted is the man or woman who has been forgiven. Step back for a moment. Now, I know that there are people today who argue that we should speak less and not more about sin. Now, are they right? Now, I think not. It was Martin Luther who said that Paul wrote the book of Romans to magnify sin. In other words, to make sin seem overwhelmingly sinful, to make it appear as wicked as possible. And if you think about it, the Bible is a book that has an incredible amount to say about sin. Paul put it this way in Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Or listen to the words of John in First John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. See, sin is pervasive. It's the experience we all live with. It's the greatest problem that we have. And until we highlight the sin problem, we can never come to the gospel. But David knew of the sin problem, and he teaches us how fortunate is the one who has been forgiven. And that's what the word blessed means it's the person who is in an envied position. It's like seeing a person who's a multi billionaire and they have everything they could ever want, and people look at them and say, Wow, you know, that guy has it made. Who wouldn't want to be like that person? But in truth, when you find out more about their life, you might say, you know, I'm not sure I want to be like that at all, but not so with the forgiven person. The more details you find out about the forgiven person, the more you want to be like that person. Because with the term blessed is not only the word fortunate, but also the word happiness, joy. It's a description of the internal condition of the forgiven man or woman. They're at peace. They're, they're satisfied with life. They're sure about their purpose. Their life makes sense. How fortunate they are. Therefore, the greatest thing that can happen to any person in this life is to be forgiven, truly forgiven. And so with the statement comes an assumption. The assumption is that our greatest problem is our sin. Now, some of you may be aware that among the Inuit people, there's not just one word for snow. In fact, the Inuit have seven different words for snow. So in other words, the Inuit have become such experts in snow because of their personal dealings with it. So they're not content with just one word to describe it. So in the same way, the Hebrews had many different words for sin. They were interested in describing it as fully as they could. Notice in Psalm 32, the first word that is used is the word transgression. The word means rebellion or a clear defiance of authority. It describes an offense against God's law. God, who is creator and also the standard of all that is righteous, has laid down his law and expects our compliance. So the Ten Commandments and other moral laws found in the Bible determine God's expected standards for the human race. To transgress is to violate, to disobey that law. The second word is the word that we're familiar with, sin. Now that word can be translated as evil doing. Let me suggest a difference between a transgression and sin. Transgression is to cross a boundary. So here's an easy example. Imagine a signpost that says, you may not pass this boundary marker. So to transgress is to go to a place that's been forbidden of you. But to sin means to do evil. See, it's one thing to defy God's law, but a new dimension is added when we say that this transgression that I have committed is not an act of self-authentication or an expression of something that, you know, I want to do to express myself. No, no. It's in itself a morally evil thing. And the third word is the word iniquity. Iniquity speaks of the defilement of the sinner's soul. It's one thing to say that we've acted in a morally evil way. It's another to say that this moral evil has stained our souls so that the sin has defined us. It has stained and corrupted us and bent our inclinations toward that which is perverse. So taken together, David is describing an inner rebellion against God's laws, accompanied by the willingness to do that which is morally wicked, accompanied by an inner perversion or an inner defect in our character that explains why we love rebellion against God. See, that's what sin is. But says David, how happy is the person who is forgiven? So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program.
0: Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: From Psalm 32, 1-2, we have identified three different words that describe sin. But this psalm also has three different words that describe forgiveness. Now, the first word is the word forgiven, and it literally means to carry away. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, a priest would confess the sins of Israel over the head of a goat, which was called a scapegoat. In fact, that's where we get our English word scapegoat. And the goat was thought of as representing the sins of Israel. So after confessing the sins of Israel over the head of the goat, the priest would then take the goat into the wilderness and let it go. The goat would never return to the camp again, probably because it would be eaten by a wild animal or meet some other kind of untimely death. But nonetheless, the goat would never return. And that's what forgiveness means. Your sins have run away from you into the wilderness, and they will never return to you again. Now, that's a precious thought. The second word is the word to cover. It means to make something invisible, no longer seen. And since it is not seen, it's not remembered anymore. It's, it's not visible. It's never an issue between you and God again. And the third word is the word or the phrase to no longer count. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. comes from a word that comes from the world of accounting. It also can mean to impute, that is, to credit something to your account. So that's what our sins do. They get credited to our account, and the, and the list just grows and grows. And like any debt, the day of reckoning comes. Some of you might remember in the novel A Christmas Carol, Joseph Marley appears from the dead to Ebenezer Scrooge. He's dragging a long chain behind him, and they represent all of his sins. But to be forgiven means that there is no accounting of any sins. The chain is no longer dragging behind us. The chain of bondage and the chain of legal guilt and of emotional guilt, the chain of unpaid debt, all of this is broken from your wrists, or the accountant's ledger of your indebtedness is removed from your record. None of the past is charged against you again. How blessed is that? And so David says, how fortunate is the man for whom that is true. And then he adds something. that's something some of us might find confusing. The last half of verse 2 says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now you might say, wait a minute, if I have read this correctly, I'm a sinner. And so I suspect that being a sinner means there's plenty of deceit in me. So then what is this thing about deceit no longer found in me? Uh, here I get back to little Billy in the Sunday school class. Remember, he had said to be forgiven, first you've got to sin. And perhaps little Billy was not so sure that he had sinned or that he was guilty of anything. And that's why Billy was not standing in line to repent. He would say, as many say today, there's nothing to repent of. You know, sin, well, we deny it. We seek to rename it. We avoid thinking about it. We try to hide it. We try to imagine that it will naturally go away and somehow magically not count against us. And that's simply a lie. Here's what David knows from this psalm. You don't get to forgiveness until you face your transgression, your moral evil, your perversity squarely and unflinchingly, without excuse and name it for what it is. It's moral evil. It's inexcusable and an affront to God. It takes an absence of deceit. It was Augustine who said that the first time the sinner repents is the very first time that the sinner and God agree on anything at all. God says that the sin is a great evil and the sinner for the first time agrees. All deceit is gone. I remember years ago, I used to have a racquetball partner who always used a lot of aftershave. I mean, he he smelled like a section of the drugstore. I just thought that's who he was until the day that his life started caving in. One day, he told me he desperately wanted coffee after the game, and and I agreed, and I'll never forget that coffee. In agony, with a red and strained face, he told me that he was an alcoholic, and all that aftershave and the mints were intended to hide from me, that he was out of control, that he'd been drinking heavily, and he smelled like liquor. See, that's how many of us are around our own sin. There are many different forms of aftershave that we use to hide the stench of our sin. And we're going to do anything not to let people around us know, in fact, we'll even harm ourselves to prevent us from facing our own sin. But it's exactly what David says it is. It's a deceit, a deception of others, and it's a deception of ourselves as well. The only one who's not deceived is God. You see, the greatest obstacle that we face is acknowledging sin. It's the deceit of hiding our sin. Our obstacle really is our integrity. Our integrity. You know, one of the greatest reasons why people don't openly confess sins is because they don't want to be identified in the sinner's lineup. And that I think about John the Baptist. He's, he's next to the Jordan River. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people unto a baptism of repentance. Turn from your sin, he says, and come and be baptized. And The people start to line up, and they're confessing their sins. So here's a tax collector, someone who's overtaxed the people and ripped them off. And then then next to him, behind him, there's a hooker, there's a prostitute. And then behind her, there's a, there's a thief. And then someone who's gone through six divorces. And then there's a Roman soldier who's abused his power. And then there's a son who's disgraced his father. And, and on and on it goes down the lineup. And, and they stand there awaiting their baptism. And it's the most horrible lineup that you've ever seen, made up of people that really should be there. See, imagine that line and looking at the people in that line and thinking, you know, I'm so glad they're repenting. And then you notice among those standing in the line is Jesus, the sinless and perfect Lamb of God, the only begotten of the Father, the only one that doesn't need to be there. For in him there was no sin. So why did Jesus stand in John the Baptist's lineup? Well, it's because he came to identify with lost humanity. He said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners unto myself. And there he stands, waiting his turn. The line moves forward, and he moves forward along with it. And he's not ashamed to stand there. And what I find fascinating is that I would be ashamed, but he's not. One of the greatest obstacles to the blessing that David speaks about is our pride, our lack of integrity, and our unwillingness to identify our sins. For many, the situation is this. They would rather suffer in their sins and let those sins consume them and openly acknowledge it and stand before God. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what David once thought. So let's read Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so David addresses why repentance and confession of sin is absolutely essential. The reason is that our silence regarding our sin is destroying us. There's a great deal of discussion among some as to what David is speaking about. If I'm right in tying Psalm 51 with Psalm 32, this was about his sin with Bathsheba. But how did hiding his sin affect him? What does he mean by his bones were wasting away? Now, is this some kind of physical condition he had developed afterward? You know, or is this physiological? Is he overwhelmed with guilt feelings so he can't function? You know, frankly, I don't think it matters. What I do know is that David is not just describing a physical condition like hypertension or depression or volatile, uncontrolled anger. He may have experienced any number of these things. Perhaps he felt them all but he actually is describing the physical response to God's hand resting on him heavily. He is withering under the chastening hand of God. I believe that David is describing something uniquely for believers. If you will not acknowledge your sin, God will chasten you until you acknowledge it. Now to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice that in verse 1, David talked about the blessedness of a person whose sin is covered by the Lord. But now in verse 5, he's speaking about the person who does not cover his or her sins before the Lord. Isn't it amazing that in uncovering our sins, that we find that our God in turn covers them for us. When we uncover, he covers. And he does that by the blood of his own dear son. It's his promise to us. And this is precisely what we find. The person who gets humble. And confesses to God all the evil that they have done is the very same person who finds that God in mercy counts no iniquity against them we count out our sins before God and as we do God counts them out of his book what utter joy what peace and satisfaction
0: to those who walk in that fashion John, let me start by asking you this question. Does authentic confession demand humility?
1: Ben, I I think it must demand humility because I don't know that we can repent of our sins until we come to terms with what our sins have done. I think at some juncture, the repentant individual has to own their sin, acknowledge it fully, and stop the self-deceit. And once the self-deceit stops, I mean, it's kind of like we face ourselves for the first time and it can be devastating. I mean, I think that's where forgiveness offers this wonderful opportunity to be restored. But I think anybody who confesses is humbled by the act. You know, Ben, I've often pondered Jesus' words while being nailed on the cross. Father, forgive them. And he says, for they know not what they do. See, he doesn't ask, Lord, forgive the Pharisees. They knew what they did. And in their case, they would have to come to genuine humility about their part in that action and the evil that lay in their hearts. Uh, The men who nailed Jesus to the cross were in in many ways just ignorant. And it, it seems like the Bible does define these different kinds of sin and the attitudes that they engender
0: as part of the answer. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Join Dr. John Neufeld every week on our new Truth and Life Today television program as he teaches and invites special guests into conversation about some of the most important questions of life and faith. Join us every Friday evening on Joy TV on the Bell Satellite Network, online at truthandlifetoday.ca or via podcast or YouTube. All the information you need to view upcoming episodes or previous episodes can be found at truthandlifetoday.ca or by calling us at Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425. And remember that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are dependent upon your financial gifts. So if you value this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca to make your donation today.